This is the future. And humanity is all but extinct. First they start skipping prescribed drug dosages. Then they begin touching. I volunteer as tribute! You can stop this. You can change things. I know that there's something more. Then we've only got one choice. We fight. Fight the Future with Dan and Paul. Hello and welcome to Fight the Future with Dan and Paul. And today we are joined by Cameron. Hello. Hey, and uh, Cameron, you are here uh, partially because we like to have guests, but also because uh, when I was doing sort of surveys of people I know who like these kind of books, I found out that you have read a large portion of the Ender's Game books. <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, Nerd. now there's 13 of them, I think I discovered recently, <laughs> uh, and I've read five. Uh, well, it turns so... out, yeah, the, the percentage of Ender's Game books that you've read continually goes down yeah exactly as, as more and more emerge <laughs> you're losing of, ground uh, cam i'm dan by the way hi hey and you you consider yourself like a fan of the series yeah i'm i really enjoyed ender's game um i think the first time i read it i was 13 or 14 mm. so i was definitely a target audience yeah i think that's when i read it first i, I read the short story first and then i read the novel later all when I'm in my early teens, which is about the exact right time to hit it. It's kind of like The Last Starfighter for smart kids. Hey, I like The Last Starfighter. Oh, wait a minute. Exactly my point. <laughs> Damn. Wow. Hashtag wrecked. Uh, so, Cam, you're a, you're a loading ready run guy, right? Yes, yes. I act and operate Boom, and I occasionally run cameras, and I contribute to writing, and I stream. Yeah, I'm just all around general participant. For yeah, any so, any crap shots that end with somebody dying horribly, often Cam's contribution to the writing process. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> I uh, I like to think that I'm the one with the exit strategy for the unanswerable scripts. That's your strategy is everybody dies at the end. I think it's the one thing we all relate to. It's a real comedy touchstone. Everyone dies in the end. Yeah, the the fact that our times on this earth are all quite fleeting and limited and that people we care about will soon die. Yeah, mm-hmm. gone forever, and then your great-grandchildren will struggle to remember what your first name was. Yeah, uh, it's a it's just a, a deep well of comedy right there. <laughs> Excellent. So are you a writer outside of this, or what's your uh, line of work? I dabble. Mainly, uh, my line of work outside of Loading Ready Run is that I'm a perpetual student. Uh, huh. I've recently completed a second undergraduate degree in chemistry. No. Oh, man, that would be rad. Mm. Chemistry. Uh, my first degree was in English, and I hope to be heading back to school again soon. Yeah, the real world is not good, so I've heard. Yeah, I'm the perpetual postdoc, so that's rad. even more grim. Rad. <laughs> Except you earn money rather than spending it, so I guess it's not that bad. And you're in Italy, in my case. I don't know why I'm complaining at all, actually. Yeah, so uh, just to let you know, we are, we're going to be uh, covering the movie Ender's Game. So, you know, if you haven't watched that movie and you feel necessary to watch it, we are going to be spoiling all sorts of stuff from it. Um, we may delve a little bit into the book, just for comparison reasons, but the 
sequels and in, in the future books uh, we're not really concerned with. Yeah, so Paul, I have a little bit of young adult dystopia-related topicality. Yes. I have this news item from the New York Times. Roller coasters and other rides based on the Hunger Games movies will anchor new theme parks in the United States and China. The two parks, built by separate companies and planned for areas near Atlanta and Macau, will join an already announced Hunger Games stage show in London and an elaborate Lionsgate zone at a $3 billion entertainment complex under construction between Abu Dhabi and Dubai and the United Arab Emirates. So you say there's, there's three different Hunger Games-themed parks that are going to be opened by three different companies? Yeah, all at once, basically. That's kind of messed up. Yeah, what's a Hunger Games roller coaster? <laughs> at different points, different children could be killed off. Like you start off at 24, and then as you go on, more and more. Yeah, right. yeah, and at some point you go through just like a curtain of blood, and you come out of the <laughs> ride like sticky and traumatized. Yeah, the baboons come out. Yeah, you get to go through the tunnel of PTSD. You come out, <laughs> and like the scariest one would be like Rue's death. So you've experienced like an emotional drop. Ooh, in your yeah. Yeah, so the child next to you is just brutally murdered. <laughs> right, so they have a, a Roo ride with you on every, or Roo dummy, <laughs> yeah. animatronic. We're going to need another Roo. <laughs> wow. I also like the idea of a Hunger Games stage show. What, what yeah. I think of, and that it may be uh, my age, but I'm thinking of the uh, Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles stage show, Back in Our Shells. I uh, am not familiar with that one. I refuse well, to believe that exists. It does exist, and I have YouTube evidence of it. It was a bunch of anonymous actors who dressed up in the suits and traveled around to different malls and performed, you know, acrobatics to a high-power peppy theme song. So we could do the same thing. We can have a Katniss and a... President Snow would come out, and all the kids in the front row go, Boo! Boo! And he goes, I'll get you. You kids! (laughs) Pantomime show, basically. (laughs) I need this in my life. Is Katniss coming up behind me? You'll be sure and tell me, won't you? <laughs> Boo. Boo. Uh, all right, let's get into setting. The setting. I found something on timemagazine.com, which is always up on the latest Ender's Game news, that it's 100 years in the future, basically, 2115, when the first invasion happens. And then what we're watching is 50 years after that. Mm-hmm. Basically, you know, there, there was this big attack by this kind of swarm of alien monsters that attacked Earth, and we've beat them off just barely with the brilliant tactical genius of Mazer Rackham, I believe his name is. Yeah. Mm-hmm. The humanity has decided that the best way to counteract future invasions by this thing is to basically, I was, I kept thinking like they basically like re-implemented like old school British boarding schools, mm-hmm. but worse. <laughs> yeah, so the this invasion, out of nowhere, these aliens attacking and killing hundreds of millions of people, I think, has rewritten our society to be super militaristic. And children are being recruited because it's said that children are better able to process all of the incoming information of modern warfare. It's basically like StarCraft with a million little units you have to control in three-dimensional space. Right. So children have better micro. Basically, yeah. Is that a StarCraft term? Yes. It is. Micro being micromanaging your units. Do you play StarCraft, Cam? Uh, not well or frequently. 
but I'm familiar with it. Okay, so you might say to someone, hey, you've got great micro there. Yeah, exactly. Sick micro, I believe would be the term. Or uber micro. (laughs) Splendid micro. (laughs) Um, Uh, One of the other things that uh, about sort of setting we find out is that there's only two kids allowed per family, which is significant because our our hero Ender is the third kid in his family. His family got special dispensation to have a third kid, mm -hmm. apparently under some sort of Goldilocks program where the first two kids, one kid was a little bit too violent, but brilliant. The other kid wasn't violent enough, but also brilliant. So they figured the third kid might be just right. Brother and sister, Peter and Valentine, who turn out to be very important globally, at least in the book. Mm -hmm. But Ender is the one who's chosen to be a recruit for battle school at the tender age of six. Yeah, or I believe he's, he's 10 in the movie. So that tells you something about this setting right there. Part of what makes them want to have him is that he uh, attacks a bully viciously. In fact, kills him in the book. Mm-hmm. And yeah, somehow that shows him that he's a great candidate and not that he's a psycho. Yeah, well, they specifically ask him why he kept attacking. Mm. Um, and he tells them it was to win not just that fight, but to win all the future fights, which they really like. Yeah, that's that's like the key word. Yeah, they really enjoy the fact that he wanted to win forever, that he took the long view, I suppose. They're, they're looking yeah. for somebody ruthless, but not um, mindlessly so. Right, so the whole of Earth society basically is, has centered around finding some great Napoleonic leader who will help to protect us against the formic, or buggers as they're called in the book. Yeah, I can I can understand why they changed that name. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's like, oh, uh, you know that name has. Uh, you know what? Never. There, there's a great part where they're like Harrison Ford and his sort of second in command, or or the, Violet Davis. They're, they're going. You know, we need Julius Caesar, like Napoleon, and and there's like Napoleon yeah. lost. Julius Caesar was killed by his own men. Yeah. It's like and it's like Napoleon lost. Like not before he conquered the entire known world. It's like, it's like, no, he didn't. No, he didn't. No, he, he, he actually failed to conquer the known world yeah, rather spectacularly. Yeah, it's known that the Waterloo is like a thing. That's that's yeah. a saying. <laughs> yeah, Waterloo, Trafalgar, the Nile. Yeah, you, you should... Russia. Yeah. There's some questionable military knowledge that's displayed by the people in charge in this. For example, I'm translating from Italian. I watched it in Italian. To mm. win a war, you win every battle. I don't believe that's technically mm. true. Again, there's a saying that says, you know, may not win the battle, but you do win the war. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's actually, actually a like a trope. <laughs> <laughs> Lost the battle, but won the war. Right. So this actual setting of the book and the movie is mostly this battle school, which at mm-hmm. least in the movie is in a space station that is basically full of children and a few grizzled old commanders. Yeah, not no teenagers. Yeah, it goes you're either like 10 years old or 40. I, I kept wondering whether the requirement for getting into battle school for everyone else was the same as for ender the rest of the people in battle school didn't seem to be particularly exceptional the sharpest tools in the shed necessarily we see about a dozen armies of kids the the homerooms the houses Mm. the 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 classes organized into armies of what seem to be about 20 children right so if you want to figure that there are two to three hundred children in this school from what we are told is a critically overpopulated planet then mm-hmm. you know their selection process is obviously quite rigorous. intense yeah rigorous. yeah 
except it just it's just that like i didn't really feel like any of the other kids displayed particular amazing achievements so yeah their days are spent doing these training games right so let's say some other things about this world so we've got faster than light travel or close to speed of light travel in the book i believe the instantaneous communication tool they use the ansible is borrowed from an ursula k Le Guin series of books in the book, it's supposedly reverse-engineered from the Formix. It is. It is. It's explicitly uh, stolen from them, as is a lot of their technology. Yeah, which is an interesting aspect of it, that even though this first Formic invasion and the second one cost Earth all this, all these people and caused all this destruction, it actually kick-started their technology way to the next level and actually let them build ships that could compete with the Formix a little bit. Right. Well, at one point, Mazer Rackham tells Ender that the only teacher is the enemy. And I think he means that, you know, kind of metaphorically, the enemy, he says, will show you where you were weak and where you were strong. But it also has this very literal meaning in that they, the, the Formics taught them how to do some things that they could otherwise never have figured out on their own, like how hmm. to fly through space. Uh, like when we first see the humans fighting the Formics, they're using, you know, contemporary fighter planes. Like I think they're actually F-35s. Hmm. And the next time we see them, they have, you know, swarms of drones and starships and ray guns. The actual battle room in the battle school uses, like, this gravitational control device that they also learned from the Formix. Well, I guess the, the other important part of the setting is after battle school, there's command school. They take him to this sort of forward assault base, which is near the Formic homeworld such that they can communicate with the fleet in real time, supposedly. Right. Uh, and it's actually on a previously Formic outpost, mm -hmm. which I thought was quite interesting that, that they actually had attacked the Formics and succeeded and right. took out one of their outposts without all of the fancy, you know, kids being in charge thing. Well, I mean, presumably they had had kids in charge for, for several years. I kind of assumed that all the senior commanders had gone through the same... Process that we see Ender go through, all the all the like old guys who are standing and looking out the windows. Yeah, yeah. I, I'd assume that they were all well, they uh, should be former child sixteen at this well. point, which which illustrates why they came up with such a weird plan in the first place because they're all seriously messed up. <laughs> yeah, from childhood. Yeah, these but, are people um, who like been... abused thirteen year olds are in charge of everything, and and pass it on to the next generation. Exactly. Yeah, so they, they they just decide that they're going to have several generations of these these child soldiers in charge, and then they're going to give a planet-destroying weapon to one of them, and uh, they're just going to leave it there, and, uh, you know, yeah, they're going to be happens. in charge, and, uh, you know, if what happens happens, then it happens. And, uh... um, and that's where Ender does these supposedly very realistic simulations of attacking the Formics in increasing number and then finally attacking the homeworld which of course turns out not to be a simulation mm -hmm. oops well and we're told that reasonably early in the movie as well i think I, I have in my notes here that at about 30 minutes into the movie you see colonel graf harrison ford's character looking at a display that shows the human fleets en route to the formic home planet with a timer on it that reads like 28 days right so we we as the audience know very early into the film that this is all real, that the, mm -hmm. there is no simulation. Right, right. Yeah, and that's the big decision that Ender makes is to, instead of attacking the fleet of the Formic, he turns their big gun on the Formic homeworld and kills everyone on the surface of the planet. It kills the queen, 
which causes all the ships to go dead as well. And that's a definite change to the world that happens. The Formics are no more mm -hmm. until right at the very end, Ender realizes that he's been in touch with the Formic Queen all along in his dreams and through this strange video game. And she entrusts him with the egg that could ensure the future of her species. Yeah, which is uh, an oddly hopeful note to go out on after we witness a genocide. Mm -hmm. Or a xenocide, I suppose, is the term that Card uses in the books. Yeah, like a genocide, but a thousand times worse. Exactly. Plausibility. For plausibility, I guess the, the central plausibility aspect is this idea that kids are going to be better at it than adults. And that, mm -hmm. I mean, that's sort of the basis of the entire book is, and the entire society, in fact, is based around this idea that not only are kids going to be better at being soldiers than adults, but young kids raised basically from birth is the, the best option for a soldier or not even a soldier for a commander. It's saying that innovation and ingenuity is more important in combat of the future where the parameters are constantly changing than experience. Mm -hmm. Like they, well, they say that generals are always fighting the last war. Yeah, I was reading about this in the context of the First World War in Italy. You know, nothing prepared them for barbed wire. Nothing prepared them for machine guns. So they were using all these tactics that turned out to be really suicidal. <laughs> like this is the extreme version of this. Let's take someone who has no preconceived ideas and have them come up with completely out-of-the-box solutions. Right. Petra and Ender actually have that conversation at one point inside the battle room when Petra has taken him to uh, teach him how to shoot. And he says, I have no good habits. And she says, you have no bad habits either. And the good habits are what I will teach you. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So this is a world that has an appetite for unformed young minds that you want to give them just the right amount of training of the right type, but very little, in fact. I mean, in the movie, he gets 30 days of training. Uh, but in the book, it's like four or five years. Like, it, it's called Ender's Game, and the game is, like, Ender plays several games during the course of both the book and the movie, right? He plays in the battle room. He plays the games in the battle room. He plays the mind game with, like, the giant strength and fairyland. Right. And he also plays the ultimate game, uh, the graduation game, where he's actually fighting the war, but what he thinks is another game. Right. So... But it's not called Ender's Games, it's called Ender's Game. His his game is that he is playing at being this very ruthless commander and also this very inspirational leader when all of his internal monologues show that he is very uncertain and that he is very uncomfortable and that he feels a lot of remorse for the ways in which he wins. He's very troubled by all the violence. Well, that's interesting because we don't get any of that in the movie, any of the in interior monologues. But to me, so much of it is that they are shaping him to be ruthless. Like, oh, exactly. Like, and he says at one point, if you follow the rules, you die. If you're violent, you win. That, that's what they're trying to teach him. But that is immediately followed. Like when he tells Eli that on his last night in the launch group, Eli follows him out into the hallway and immediately tells him, As-salamu alaykum, right? Peace be upon you. It's, mm -hmm. I mean, there, there's this weird aspect of the you know, Harrison Ford's character and, and also even various other people, but especially him, he seems to have a very clear idea in his mind 
sort of what is required to shape the kind of kid that he wants. Yeah, like where where do they if they've never produced someone who's good enough in this basis, wh- why do they think they know how to do this? You know, like it seems as though it's been around for decades as far as their confidence in what they're doing, which is quite brutal. Like it seems designed to pit the children against each other down well, to the point of physical yeah. violence. Mm-hmm. I mean, I not mean, just competitive, say that at certain points. Yeah. The, to beat uh, each other up. And in one yeah. case, uh, Ender actually kills another boy who's bullying him. So, yeah, what gives them that confidence that, that this is going to produce amazing commanders? Like Harrison Ford at one point says, my daddy raised horses and I know a thoroughbred when I see one. Yeah. Creepy. I also think it's worth keeping in mind that Ender is exceptional in a lot of ways, that I'd imagine that the children who attend the battle school, for them, this is just what their elementary school is. And then their high school looks something a lot like or has a lot of the similar exercises, but they don't really leave these institutions until they're 18 or 19 years old. So that this hmm. is just what their education looks like. Hmm. That he's a prodigy and is being accelerated through it. Exactly. And then once he's an adult, then he's just a member of the military and you know gets a job somewhere or is assigned somewhere. So battle school is in space. That seems really expensive. Yeah, when he's going to quit, he's like, you'll have wasted, you know, millions of dollars on me. Mm -hmm. Well, I I think the boarding school as kind of a fantastical place has a lot of a lot of history in young adult fiction. I mean, we also have Hogwarts, right? When you are selected to attend this like magical otherworldly place that it actually be in some ways magical and otherworldly is probably important. And I imagine that there are probably like security and other practical concerns in setting for why they would have it in space. Certainly there's the plausibility of the battle room. Right, to try and get the kids to think in three dimensions, maybe. That's probably the coolest part of the movie is the battle room, which is these three-dimensional war games Mm -hmm. in zero gravity. And the fact that Ender learns to not think in terms of up and down, but in terms of every direction. That adaptability is really what allows Ender to exceed where the other children are kind of locked into the perspective of the hallway, right? Where when we see Bonzo deploying his squads of soldiers, he he refers to left, right, up, and down relative to the the portal. Mm. And in Mm. the book, Ender explicitly remarks on that, that he is trapped in the school's spatial context. But I especially wanted to talk about the battle room in terms of an arena or a sanctuary or I guess in kind of elemental terms, is like this magical circle. We see other characters do similar things, where we see one of Ender's friends just go to the battle room and float in it when it's not in use, because he finds it relaxing. And it is this safe space. We, we have to assume that the teachers know how to control gravity, right? Because you do things in the battle room that aren't explained by it just being in space. Right. But that's never fully expounded upon right, that humans now know how to control gravity, as we learned from the, from the formics. So it's, it's this alien environment. And what I'm getting at here is the idea that kind of like what happens in the battle room stays in the battle room, that it's this place you can go to be someone else who you're not most of the time. Mm-hmm. And it's where they go to be vulnerable in some ways, whereas the battle school has conditioned them to be very hard. I really like this idea that, that what you do at play 
is, even if it's something that you can kind of heavily compartmentalize into this other space, it's still a part of who you are. Like you can't compartmentalize parts of your, your psyche. It is a part of you, right? It's still a decision you made, whether you're killing a dummy or whether you're killing a person, right? If, if the, the intent is there, then the, the moral resonance is there. Hmm. Hmm. I really think that the, the greater theme of this book and these movies is that you have to be careful what you pretend to be because you turn into that person. If it had been, you know, all simulation and all that kind of stuff, how accurate a simulation would it have to be before the moral stuff starts to come into it again in terms of destroying all this stuff? And if you're feeling all the same feelings as you would when you actually are doing the genocide, how much different is that from really doing the deed? Right. One of the notes I made was everything focuses on Ender and, you know, how he figures out what's going on and how much it messes him up and stuff. But it doesn't actually seem to have affected Petra, the one who actually fired the gun. That right. was the, she, she was, I mean, the order came down from Ender, but she was the one who physically fired the gun. Yeah, who pulled that, the trigger. Who pulled the trigger to commit this. Uh, yeah, apparently her story, isn't, her story isn't important. She's just a little bit of character. The one female character in the book, mm -hmm. except for Valentine, I guess. But yeah. It sure but... wraps up quick after Ender destroys that planet. Scariness. Obviously, if you're a kid in battle school, I feel like you'd be scared a lot of the time. <laughs> yeah, this is a, a very spiky place. Yeah. That everything yeah. is dangerous. Everything and, is hostile. And, I mean, they talk about on several occasions that, you know, don't trust anybody. Your friends might turn on you or whatever. Yeah, the look to your left, look to your right. These people are not your friends. They're your competitors. Uh -huh. But then, so, but if you're not in battle school, you're just the person. Mm -hmm. It's been 50 years since the Formic invasion. There's been no indication of further Formic activity. And yet, they're still pushing this narrative of the Formics could basically come at any time to attack us. Right. Really hard. Like, you see posters everywhere right, and, uh, and of being like, it could happen, or like, be prepared, or something stuff like yeah, that. Yeah, and Ender's father kind of obsessively watches footage from the previous wars. Like, he watches these shows that you know, show the slaughter of tens of millions of people. Mm. Like people who get obsessed with 9-11. Yeah. If they were going to do an invasion, we would know about it because we have them under very close observation. I mean, they know exactly where the Formics are. They know what they're up to, mm -hmm. to the extent where they actually have like probes looking right down into their cities. So it's all the stuff at, you know, back on Earth about, you know, they have to be ready to defend themselves and attack at any time is total bullcrap. Oh, well, yeah, yeah. I mean, it's... <laughs> it's total it's, propaganda. Yeah, it's a ploy by the higher-ups to maintain power, mm -hmm. right? Yeah, so it's a world that's controlled by extreme right-wing assholes who believe that a preemptive strike is the right thing to do after 50 years of peace. Mm -hmm. um, and yet they're the good guys. They're played by Harrison Ford and... and uh, yeah, Viola Davis. Viola Davis, like very sympathetic actors. and But they're really like the most evil people you could imagine, in my opinion. Yeah, we see this mindset in, like, Jack Nicholson and A Few Good Men or, you know, like, in the works of Robert Heinlein, this idea that it's us or them, there's no possible way to avoid militarizing society and getting all tough for the good of our survival. 
Mm-hmm. And yeah, that leads them to do this crime that is worse than any crime that's ever been committed in the history of our planet. I mean, essentially, it is a boot camp that they're doing. I mean, that to sort of break people down to rebuild them, mm-hmm. except they're kids, so they haven't even really been built in the first place. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> it's preemptively and, breaking them down. Well, and the school we're shown Ender attending at the beginning of the movie is, you know, it's a military academy. Every All the students are wearing uniforms. Mm-hmm. Everyone has kind of brush cuts, right? There are posters everywhere. But it's all applied to children under the age of 10. Right. And, well, I mean, like, I assume that this is just their society now. This is this is what life is like under the international fleet, that society has been militarized top to bottom for several generations. You compared the battle school to an English boarding school, but I would go further and say it's more like a residential school that we had in Canada, where you take people far away from their parents and tell them that they're not good enough and have them supervised by much older people exclusively. Well, which is just a recipe for horrible abuse. Like your only worth to them is as your potential future value as a commander, not as who you are as a person or as a child for that matter. So, and all this happens far, far away from any kind of supervision by any kind of greater authority, definitely from their parents. They cut off communication with people back home. They can't even send video messages or emails back home. I love the... uh... There, there's a, there's Harrison Ford's great thing where he basically says like, no, we're not going to let you send messages back home because if you send messages back home, they'll think we're monsters. Mm-hmm. And, and <laughs> so we've solved that problem by making it so you can't send messages back home. Yeah, it turns out that was a really easy problem to solve. The fact that they're paranoid about any information about the battle school leaking out in the context of a society that has been militarized yeah, yeah. I mean, generations. That, that shows you just how yeah. messed up it is. That they're like, you know, everyone goes through these schools, right? But we know that this one, even in the context of that, is especially <laughs> egregious. And I mean, Harrison Ford actually does say at one point where he's like, you know, when this is all over, we can talk oh. about whether it was the right thing to do or not or something yeah, like that. Yeah, yeah. He says, when the war is over, we can have the luxury of debating the morality of what we do. And Viola Davis answers, when it's over, what will be left of the boy? And yeah. Harrison Ford says, what does it matter if there's nothing left at all? And that's the central, I think that's a, that's a very central argument to this work. Like, it, what what is survival worth? And it's also this idea where it's like, by most people's definitions, the war is over. Mm-hmm. In the real world, you know, the enemy just kind of staying in their own place, not doing anything, mm-hmm. and having been beaten back is considered the war, you you won, the war is over now. Yeah, you've accomplished your objectives. <laughs> but it turns out the war is actually, the Formix can't be around at all. They just want to run up the score. They want to win for all time, even though the Formix don't seem particularly interested in it, even though we can't communicate with them, so we don't know what they want, but they aren't it's, acting like they're in a war. I love that it's like, and there's like, why haven't we tried to communicate with them? And Petra is like, look, we dissected them. They don't have any vocal cords. Clearly, they have no ability to communicate whatsoever. Right. <laughs> yeah, it seems like they didn't even try at any point to communicate with them. What would have happened if he hadn't gone back? Right? Presumably, the human fleets would have... They would have sort of, I don't know, got one of the other kids, I guess, to do it. Yeah, and they probably wouldn't have wound up being able to destroy the enemy home planet. Right. Right, the Formic homeworld, which probably would have been a win for everyone, <laughs> unless the Formics had been like, well, I guess we have to go to war again, and finally, like, yeah, well, I mean, they tried. They Yeah, good thing the Formics aren't as big assholes as we are. Yeah, <laughs> but, I mean, maybe after we showed up on their doorstep with a planet-killing weapon, they'd have been like, 
well, uh, I guess it's on. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, what about the idea of threatening them with a the platinum-killing weapon rather than uh, just using it preemptively for no reason? Yeah. They, they seem to be... They, they they seem slightly shocked when Ender uses it on the planet. Yeah. They're like... And I was sort of like, isn't that kind of what it's for? Like, did they not think that that was what would happen with it? That's, yeah, exactly. Like, you built this thing. You built this thing... Why did they just, make it more powerful than is necessary to destroy one of their big motherships? Like, oh, yeah. Yeah, I guess that totally would work. It's on obvious it. now that I mean, now that we see it. Yeah, now that we've seen it. <laughs> now that we've seen you use it to kill several billion, you know, sentient creatures. Yeah, if you're willing to do it at all, then the rest is just a negotiation, and mm. that's quite frightening, mm. right? And I think that's that's an that's a good problem to lay in front of like a a, a young adult. Mm -hmm. How would they do? I am somebody who is designing things for the kids to do in battle school, hmm. especially the game that's going to be played in the battle arena. We've gone through various iterations of this game in the 50 years since the Formic invasion. And as we've gotten more sophisticated with the gravity manipulation technology and all this different stuff, because the game does teach the kids a lot of the things that they need to know for the commanding part not only just how to move in three dimensions and how different stuff like that works but also uh, different squad configurations the different ways that that weapons work and different ways that you can set up a situation the big blocks in the middle of the arena can be moved around and reconfigured to all sorts of different places it, i mean it's basically gamifying the actual space battles that they hmm. will be having it's interesting that they use your game kind of like they make a meta game out of it. They use it specifically to hone Ender's edge. Like they keep changing the rules on Ender and then he keeps adapting to them with brilliant new strategies, which is kind of the core of the original story that really grabbed me when I was a kid. Right. They are doing kind of a meta game where they're, they keep messing with him. I mean, I think in the book it's even more so where basically every time he gets comfortable, he gets a good squad, he gets friends, they switch him to somewhere else mess something up for them <laughs> just to be assholes yeah unlike quidditch it seems like it could be a good game like a real game mm -hmm. and also it's only it only works in zero gravity so hopefully there isn't going to be like muggle space game <laughs> <laughs> yeah when you see like a bunch of people running around in the park on broomsticks yeah yeah now i'm picturing you with a bunch of other like middle-aged dudes gaming it all out in the space station, like preparing for it and working out all the bugs. Mm, yeah, yeah. You get a free flight up to the space station because obviously you can't try it not in zero gravity. And then, yeah, you're, you're gaming it all out in preparation for these six to 10-year-olds. Yeah. Yeah, except when you, when you go out to play it around, you're not like a 60-pound 10-year-old. Right, yeah. Yeah, you're, you're, you're actually like a grown man who's like careening off walls and hurting your back, <laughs> right? <laughs> yeah. Also, I imagine there's probably some, like, if I get information about what Harrison Ford is doing, mm -hmm. uh, it's being like, what the? No, you're messing it up. It's yeah. like... <laughs> it's a perfectly balanced game. It's like you put all the stars in, like, a screen in front of one side. That doesn't make any sense. Now that side will be... <sighs> this is <laughs> like unfair. Being, yeah, being really frustrated. Yeah, you, you, you've screwed with the balance. Now we'll have to go in and patch it again. <laughs> I am uh, one of the teachers. Mm, okay. I think. On, at, as, at battle school? At battle school. 
And we, we discussed earlier how now that we're all getting older, we kind of identify more with the adults in these stories than we do with the, you know, <laughs> the rebellious children. And you would think as one of the instructors that you would have a lot of empathy for them, but they clearly don't. They're clearly <laughs> quite comfortable in this role. They, they have, they themselves, I imagine, have gone through the same kind of education process, if not at the battle school, then at some kind of other school. Mm. that has kind of a similar moral and ethical training program and that you have now been selected to teach, you know, humanity's best and brightest. And that part of that is that you have to be hard mm. and you have to be uncompromising. The teachers that are uh, a little bit more relaxed about stuff don't get sent to battle school to do the teaching. Right. I'd like to see the like hippie teacher. <laughs> it's like, yeah. yeah, you know, you got to do your own thing, Ender. There's, don't listen to that. Yeah, there's no cool battle school teacher. No, no, there isn't. Right, there is no. <laughs> Sits on the edge of his desk. Right, there is no equivalent yeah. of of Dumbledore. The corduroy blazer. Right. Yeah. Uh, the, there is no sympathetic adult in this story, which right. I think is quite no. a break with a lot of other young adult fiction. Like you have, you have Haymitch in the Hunger Games, right? You have uh, Dumbledore in Harry Potter. And and mm -hmm. I mean, and Harrison Ford like actually says, we have to isolate him mm -hmm. from anybody who would be. A comfort to him basically yeah um but there's no one like that in the movies and i think that's kind of an interesting role to slot yourself into the role of this this person who is essentially like a tormentor of small children <laughs> right yeah there'd be a lot of stress in that yeah exactly like what kind of toll does that take on you after a while right you're essentially participating in was it the, the stanford prison experiment it's amazing what just differences in the culture can sort of create right when that and, becomes and, and becomes normal for the kids when then it becomes older for the adults as they grow up right and if we were shown that in the movie i think that would be like so completely alienating but we're not actually shown a lot of physical correction by the instructors no no right? it's like, all just uh, psychological torment yeah it's all psychological torment and at one point uh dap makes ender do like 40 push-ups right and that's kind of it for the physical violence that and he's subjected to from above like all, all the neglect and isolation is definitely a form of violence and abuse, but it's it's not the physical. And you do it not because you're evil, but because you think it's right and you think it's best. Um, and and you, like in this case, you literally think that it's either this or extinction. Mm. Like right. humanity is locked in a battle so, for so you... survival, for our, for our right to exist. We we are on the precipice here, and if we don't do this to these children, an existential threat. Yeah. Like, if, if we do not do everything possible to these children to turn them into the person that we need to save us, we will be extinguished. So you've, you've definitely bought into Harrison Ford's wavelength in terms of what's necessary. Well, I'm, I'm not sure that, like, I, as Cameron... Well, well no, of course, of course not. But, but, like, but you, yeah, the, as the... you, as this teacher, you would definitely be, like, already bought into this whole... Well, yeah, project. exactly, yeah. Because, as, as you said, they don't, they don't send the hippie teachers to the battle schools. Right, yeah. I am a child that was recruited for battle school. So I was the best in my class. In class, like in battle school, we spent a lot of time doing military stuff. And I was the best. I was the best in my school. I won prizes every single year even from a very young age. I won the best in my district and the best in my province and the best in my collection of provinces. And I was selected to battle school. It was the greatest day of my life. Everybody was incredibly proud of me. I headed off to battle school. 
and I found out I was not even in the top 10% or top 50% of people there. Everybody was faster than me, it seemed like. Everybody was cleverer, and I started to lose. And my whole world was turned upside down in these games. I was relegated to be a, just one of the privates in the army. You can always tell who they're paying attention to and who they're not, and I could feel it slipping away. But something that I'd never really noticed before is that I, I'm kind of big for my age, kind of wide-shouldered. And one time I took out some of my anger on one of these smaller kids, some of my frustration. He looked at me the wrong way, and I just shoved him against the wall. And I started to feel some of that attention come back a bit. I started to feel a little bit of approval. And I realized that I could take out any frustration that I wanted, and nothing bad would happen. In fact, the drill sergeant came around the corner one time when I was pounding the shit out of this little kid and just walked right past. Started to get little nods in the hall. Good job. Good punching of kids. And I quickly realized that even though I wasn't getting anywhere, I had a brand new hobby as a sadist that was going to be allowed full reign on the space station. And my name would be said in fear for generations down the line. You look like your teacher material. (laughs) Yeah. I like the idea of there being like a designated bully. Hmm. <laughs> You've got like a badge or something. It's like, hey, this is not personal. I'm the guy that's here to punch you in the face. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, I have a job to do. Yeah, you may have received the notification this morning. Yeah. It's time. I'm not the only one. I'm just the best one. It's good to be excel at something. Hmm. Yeah. Hope for the future. In this segment, we are going to maybe talk a little bit about what happens in terms of the actual books. The big section we can talk about here is after the destruction of the Formic homeworld, Ender is led to find a, another queen egg that could theoretically restart the Formic race. He gets the spaceship and goes off with this egg in the hopes of finding another planet that he can sort of restart the Formic world on. Mm-hmm. So back on Earth, you know, again, if you're just a regular person, it's happy days, man. Like, there's got to be celebrations for weeks. Yeah, yeah, it's just nonstop partying. They told us there was a threat, and then they told us they defeated it. Right. I guess the question is, do they tell you that they defeated it? Right. That's the real trick, is that theoretically the entire government apparatus is based around this looming threat. So maybe the... uh, they're a little uh, reticent to be like, well, the main part is done, but maybe there's some other stuff we don't yeah. know. <laughs> and everyone who knows that the threat is defeated is, you know, on this forward operating base. Or oh, yeah, that's a good point. Otherwise, in these ships that all exploded. Mm-hmm. In the sequel, we cut 3,000 years in the future. Ender is now a, a uh, regretful 30-something <laughs> carrying this egg around the universe looking for a home for it. And his name is Mud. He's considered the Xenocider and has gone down in history as being one of the greatest criminals in history. Oh, so now everyone likes the Formics. Those poor Formics, (laughs) they didn't know they were just so friendly. And this guy, horrible. It was the act of a rogue entity within the military uh, with no knowledge from the superiors. Well, it's it's not even quite that. It's just that you know history has come down firmly on the side on on Ender's side, really. That mm. 
surprisingly, it's come down against the genociders. It's not until then we sort of get an uh, explicit confirmation that the Formics have this sort of telepathic mm-hmm. communication ability to, to not only communicate, but also they seem to be able to sort of read Ender's mind and his sort of mental state and take this guy who theoretically they know is the one who destroyed their entire civilization. Literally the last person you should give the egg to. Yeah. Well, but literally know, but the they last know person. That he's that he is actually the right person to give it to. He's now very, very sorry. The first thing we actually see in the movie is is this quote that plays across the screen. It says, when I understand my enemy well enough to defeat him, then in that moment I also love him, which is something that Ender says, which is, you know, kind of hokey. Pretty good but, for a 10-year-old, though. Yeah, exactly. But if the Formics can read his mind, then they understand that that empathy for them is present, mm. right? That he understands them, and that's why he was able to defeat them. He understands them the most of any human being, which is not much at all. Well, no. yeah, he, he, they, they are still profoundly alien. The two sequels are really about how this experience changed his approach to all creatures in the universe and right. how he becomes an important political figure in a couple of encounters with other alien races. Well, and he has also gone on to be uh, an important religious figure um, right? in his alter ego as the speaker for the dead. Which they teased a little bit in this, mm-hmm. probably in the hopes of there would be a sequel, but... <laughs> well, I mean, you kind <laughs> of have to hope, bit. right? Yeah. I guess, you know, hope for the future. Also, hope for the future on the hope of the, on the part of the filmmakers, you know, planning <laughs> yeah, for a like, sequel. Orson Scott Card apparently said specifically, there shouldn't be a sequel. All it would be is a bunch of talking heads punctuated by the most horrifying violence ever. Yeah. Yeah, that sounds about right. Yeah, that sounds about right. And it also like, sounds like a lot of actual movies, though, so, you know, who knows? Yeah, <laughs> I mean... Yeah, it basically sounds like most war movies. They could get, get Angelina to Jolie to direct it. Uh-huh. Uh, the, uh, Take that. The book, I thought the book had a really great closing line when it said, you know, he, he would look for a long time. The way he plays the game reveals his state of mind. If you won't let me assess him one-on-one, I need some other way to know what he's feeling. I don't care how he's feeling. I want him to toughen up and learn how to lead. Well, before we make him a leader, let's see how he deals with frustration. You killed him. Why? That's what they want from us. Follow the rules, you lose. Choose violence, you win. I've never seen anyone do that. Perfect. He's perfect. All right. Well, Ender's Game. I mean, it's one of those things where it's like, I wouldn't call it a good movie, mm-hmm. but nope. it has some interesting things to talk about. Yeah. I mean, I, I think it was probably about as successful as an adaptation of this kind could hope to be. Mm. Um, considering... Which is a gigantic bomb. <laughs> was it? Box office wise. Box office wise, not so good. Yeah. So I guess, but, it... you know, give him credit for t- trying to put in some of the more cerebral aspects of it. Yeah. Thanks so much for coming on, Cam. Thank you for having me. It was a pleasure to be here. This is a Loading Ready Run podcast. Like all Loading Ready Ready Run stuff, it it can be supported on their Patreon at patreon.com slash loadingreadyrun. Please uh, subscribe and rate on iTunes or on YouTube. You can comment. Also, loadingreadyrun.com slash forum. And we'd like to say thanks, as we always do, to our theme song composer, Bradley Rains, 
and the lady who does our interstitial segments, my friend Kiara Kant. So yeah, until till next time, may the odds be ever in favor of whoever started in the battle room first, because that seems to be the way it goes. Yep. Bye. Bye Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Ci vediamo. <laughs> Perfetto.